0: Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Welcome to Episode 16, Forgotten Lives, Part 4, Sylvia Hanisch Berlin. The unpublished memoir I'm about to read was written by Sylvia Hannish Berlin in the 1970s. She gave these pages to me for safekeeping, written on a manual typewriter, single-spaced, without margins, and I have held on to them all these years. Daughter of Herman and Tilly Hannish, Sylvia was born in Brooklyn in 1910. She married Manfred Berlin, had two sons, was widowed in 1972, and died in Florida in 1995. The narrative of her young life describes a Jewish household in a working-class neighborhood in New York about a 100 years ago. It's filled with humor and richness of detail that paints the picture of a household that is heartwarming, yet contoured with both tradition and patriarchy. When I think of tradition, I think of the song Fiddler on the Roof, perhaps you do too. And perhaps you also think of your own family traditions. My family had few traditions, with one special exception. On Sunday mornings after church, my father would go to Mueller's Bakery, the one bakery in town, and bring home fresh, soft crumb cake with delicious, buttery crumbs on top the size of marbles. He'd also stop at the newspaper store to buy himself his weekly cigar and a comic book for me. How I wish I'd saved those because they're now antique roadshow collectibles. Alas, I didn't, nor do I go to church anymore, but I have loved crumb cake ever since. Family traditions, whatever one thinks of them, become part of our memories, and here is Sylvia's. Shabbos, Friday night and Saturday. The weekly ritual for the preparation of Shabbos started on Thursday. Thursday was a very busy day. It starting with getting us kids off to school, which was a simple procedure. The boys wore the same things for the entire week. Pants, shirt, and tie, with one handkerchief, which was used only for show, no blow. This miracle was accomplished by making the kids change when they came home from school. It didn't really matter. They wore the same shirt. By the end of the week, they were out at the elbows, and collars were always frayed and black. The underwear, longies, when removed still looked as though there was somebody sitting in them. The knees were all stretched, as were the elbows, and most of the buttons were missing at the most strategic points so diaper pins were used for decency's sake. Finally, the pins would tear the holes, and the knees wore out long before we outgrew them. Longies were worn nine months of the year and served a double purpose. They were worn all day and all night. We had no night clothes. So it was a simple matter to get up, wash. This consisted of wetting our hands, gently and gingerly going over the face, and then scrubbing everything with the towel, which was used by everyone, and I mean everyone, all ten of us. Don't worry, it was changed every day. We dressed, had the usual hot glass of cocoa and butter roll, and off to school. Then Mama got busy. The linens were changed on all the beds, metal beds, feather comforters, real great. The floors were washed, the windows were washed, the furniture was dusted. The only thing left undone was the kitchen and the bathroom. These were done on Friday after all the cooking was done. But back to Thursday. By this time it's 3.30 and the kids come trooping home from school, change clothes, dumped in a heap on a chair, and fly out without so much as a bayou leave. Except me. I have to go to the cooperative baker and buy rolls for breakfast and bread for supper. On the way back from the bakery, I cram down a roll and pray my mother won't find out because each roll is very carefully counted. So much for breakfast, so much for my father's lunch, and so on. If caught, it gives swift punishment. A flashing swipe across the face, tears, running nose, and shut up or you'll get worse. At this point, my mother says, it's time to go to the chicken market. This is a nightmare I will never forget. The chicken market is crowded, hot, and foul-smelling. And she actually wrote F-O-W-L, foul-smelling. All the ladies are picking out the chicken they want and go around to the cages filled with all kinds of chickens, springs, yearlings, roosters, hens. And the chickens scream every time one of the ladies investigates whether there are eggs or chicken fat. Then when one is selected... It is taken to the chicken lady, who weighs it by binding its legs and hanging it upside down on a hook, and all the while the bird is squawking and flapping its wings. It is finally settled on the weight of the bird, and then comes the showcat. He slaughters the bird. By this time, I run out of the market sick to my stomach. I once watched this act, and it's quite traumatic. After this ordeal, we go to the fish store. And all the ladies have now congregated at the fish store for gefilte fish, which is made with several varieties of fish. My mother loved live carp, so a live carp was bought, weighed, and carried home, flip-flopping in a basket. And when we got home, the bathtub was half-filled with water, and the carp was let loose to swim around until Friday, when it got clobbered over the head and filleted for gefilte fish. I might add at this point that we didn't use the bathtub during the week, only on Saturdays and Sundays, so the fish swam around until Friday morning. Friday, Mama did all the cooking and baking for the entire weekend, and by the time we got home from school, the kitchen chairs were turned over on the table. The area cleared. The aromas in the kitchen were enough to make a hungry mob of kids swoon. The boys were given a fresh piece of coffee cake or a moon kukku, and out they went to play. I had to wash the kitchen floor, which seemed to me as large as Grand Central Station. The kitchen chairs were turned over on the table, and the area cleared, and there was no such thing as a mop. You got down on your knees, under which you put an an old laundry sack, and scrubbed with soap and water and brush, and rinsed with clear hot water. You ended up in the toilet, which then had to be scoured and washed. The water bucket emptied, The shmata, which is a rag, the shmata rinsed and wrung out and hung on the line to dry. By this time, the floor was almost dry, and all the weekly papers, Dirt Tag, that's the name of a Yiddish newspaper at that time, were spread around on the floor. The chairs taken off the table, and a white tablecloth was spread on the table. The candlesticks were polished and set on the table and candles placed in them. The last-minute touches were completed, and then Mama went into the bathtub and scrubbed and talcumed and came out looking and smelling like an angel. And then Papa came home. The first thing Papa did was to hand out a piece of candy, the filled kind, which he had bought at the station and brought home in a little white bag. His hands were grimy from a hard day's work, and his clothes were old and worn, but he always looked clean and smelled clean. He was a coppersmith. He could do almost anything that needed doing both inside and outside the house and nothing was too difficult for him. Everything he put his hand to turned out well but if you asked him what he thought he would say, "Ah, could be better. I remember the time when making schnapps was illegal. This was during Prohibition and the doctor had told my father that a little schnapps before dinner would calm him and help him digest his food. So since we couldn't afford to buy any he made a still in distillery and made his own schnapps. This contraption was erected across the bathtub and the odors of the mash permeated the house and Mama would walk around in great terror lest the police come and arrest everyone. So finally a clear white liquor slowly dripped out of a little pipe and into the clear gallon bottle and this was continued until all the liquor was completed. Then Papa would test it. He poured some liquor onto a dish put a match to it, and poof, a blue flame licked up and was quickly burned out, and the plate was completely dry. By this way, Papa knew it was about 140, proof. Then he added some coloring and very carefully stored this nectar for the gods. This he measured out very carefully, nightly into a jigger for him and a jigger for Mama, and both raised glasses, clinked and l'chaim, long life. And then she served him his glass of tea, which silly would say, a glauva This ritual came before he washed up for dinner. Then he would remove all his clothes to his waist and scrub with a scrubbing brush until he shone. His chest was completely hairless, and he always was meticulous about his hair and teeth, false teeth, which he scrubbed with scouring powder and salt, and his fingernails. Then he put on a clean old white shirt with the collar frayed and no sleeves and sat down to the dinner table and read the paper until dinner was ready. We all ate in the kitchen, which consisted of a kitchen table with a white porcelain top and blue and white checks in each corner, three benches for all the kids, and two chairs, one for Mama and one for Papa, and they sat side by side. And we kids sat around, staring at the candles flickering, smelling all the good fish and chicken soup, and the fresh holly, which is an egg bread braided, We were all served individual portions because that way we knew what we were allowed, and no second portions. Today, we serve soup first. But when we were children, there was nothing like that. Only on Friday nights and Saturday lunch, the big meal, did we get an appetizer. Sometimes it was chopped liver, or chopped herring, or mashed brains, or chopped lima beans, or gefilte fish. But during the week, there was no appetizer. Dinner started with the main course, then the soup, which was usually very filling, and then compote, dried pears, apricots, prunes, and apples, which I never ate. And even to this day, I don't eat desserts because of Mama's compote. We never had any salad as we know it today. Lettuce was called cow's grass. But we did have pickles and sauerkraut all winter, and during the summer we had huge beef, tomatoes, and cucumbers, scallions, called scunions, and radishes and all the bread and butter you could consume. On the table, there was no ketchup or mustard, only horseradish and salt. During the summer, Mama made a kind of sweet, sour romaine lettuce, which we kids never ate. The barrel of sauerkraut, which Mama put up herself, was kept on the fire escape. This was winter eating. The frost came and iced the sauerkraut, and it had to be practically chopped out of the barrel and brought to the table at least one hour before dinner time. Sometimes it was still frozen, and then the fur flew. Papa was a tough taskmaster. He expected as good as he gave from everybody, except his temper, and no one could beat him at that. Most of the time, he was eminently fair. He was strict and moral, and though he did not observe holidays by going to temple, he obeyed all the Ten Commandments and expected us to do the same. As for praying, he said that God could hear him wherever he prayed whether in the house or in the garden, which he loved very dearly. Each blade of grass was like a child to him, and he permitted no one into the garden, lest they break one. Flowers were not permitted to be cut up to the time their petals were beginning to fall. He said their beauty was to be enjoyed from a distance. Look and smell and don't touch. But back to Friday night. The last of Friday night came after dinner was finished, and the dishes were cleared from the table. Then Mama put a huge bowl of peanuts on the table, tea and cake for all, and then came the best part of all, Papa told stories. They were continued stories, continued from Friday to Friday, and the greatest writers never came near my father for telling stories. It was a time of wonder and love and imagination. Mama sat at his right and dozed. The kitchen light was off, and the flickering candle lights played across her relaxed and sleeping face. And not a sound was heard but Papa's voice. Finally, Papa would say, No, time to go to bed. And in a daze, we got up and trooped off to bed. All in one bedroom, with the exception of Mama and Papa and Rena. Rena had her own room. I slept with Jessie and Sydney. Martin and Abe slept together. Simon slept on the cot, all in one room. And Arthur, then the baby, slept in a crib alongside Papa and Mama. I recall vividly sitting on Mama's bed in the middle of the night, shivering and rocking Arthur in his vigla. Mama was too tired, so she would call to me, waken me, and I was elected to rock him until he fell asleep. The vigla is rocked with the foot. It's a crib with rockers, and it usually rocks the baby silly. Just picture it, the baby rocks from side to side. It's purely a miracle to anyone fall asleep by being vigorously rolled from side to side and the poor baby was wet or hungry but I didn't know that I just rocked and rocked I had to go to school in the morning and I was sleepy then when all was quiet I would crawl back into bed under the feather comforter and fall sound asleep until morning the only thing that was bad about sleeping with my little brothers was that occasionally one or the other would bedwet wet. The feather comforter would get sopping wet and absorb the cold, and then my longings would pick up the moisture, and I was cold all night. But we never complained, because going to bed was such fun. We always had the giggles, and Mama would yell out from the kitchen that if we didn't go to sleep, we would all catch it from her. And believe me, we caught it quite often. She would come swooping in, waving the straw broom with a mighty swing. She would bring it down on the bed willy-nilly, and whomever was unlucky got a stiff belt. We learned to be quite adept at dodging that room. I'll never forget the time Mama threatened to punish us for not going to sleep, and we heard her coming, so the boys jumped out of bed and dived under the bed, crawling as far back as the wall as they could. Mama came in mad as a wet hen, didn't find them, saw me standing there frightened to death. She terrified me and demanded to know where they were. I couldn't let out a word. Just then, one of the boys made a faint noise, and she heard where it came from. So down on both knees, she went and started to push and jab that broom around under the bed. By this time, I started to cry that she would stick out their eyes. But she kept on poking, and I kept on crying until she turned around and started to slap me, saying, I'll give you something to cry about. Pow, pow. Finally, the kids crawled out to rescue me, were promptly slapped soundly, thrown into bed, lights out and the soft, muffled crying could be heard until we dozed off. What a hard, cruel world. Punishment was swift, and there was no appeal. If we did something to arouse her anger during the day, we got swift punishment and then wait till Papa comes home. This was a worse fate than death. As I look back at those days, I realize that Papa just had to look at you and say a few words, and we obeyed. He very rarely slapped us. He never slapped me until I was 18 years old. Imagine that. And I caught that slap because Mama was angry, not because I did anything wrong. But that's another story. I keep digressing. So Saturday morning, we slept late. What pleasure. No school, no homework, no errands, no work. Just pure pleasure. We observed the Sabbath gladly. At about 1 o'clock, we had the big meal of the day, appetizer, chicken, or gudemte flesh, which is a pot roast, potatoes, which she call kabakken and bing bongs, or potted lima beans, soup, and the eternal compote. Then we kids would start begging for money to go to the movies. In those days, two children could go to the movies for five cents. So after about an hour, Mama and Papa would relent and give us the money plus one penny for candy, and off we went to the movies where we sat through two performances. Then home we went to wait until dark when Mama would go to the delicatessen store and come home with frankfurters and beans and beautiful murder bread, which is a cornbread, she called it murder bread, and wash it down with tea and cake. Since there was no radio or television, Papa would play the phonograph. His taste ran to opera, classical music, and famous religious singers like Rabbi Yussela Rosenblatt, Vinogradov and some names that have faded from memory. As we grew older, we brought in some modern records, and we all learned to dance. Mama and Papa used to waltz around the table, and we kids just burst with joy. So that was Shabbos at our house when we were kids. Going to school was never enjoyed. Even though we were completely disciplined at home, there was always something to do, and good food and kids to play with. We were never lonely. I remember a time when Sidney and I and the baby were at home during the school week. Probably a cold or a bellyache, I don't recall now. The other children had gone off to school, and Mama went shopping. She was in the midst of cutting some material for a dress for Rena, and it was spread out on the kitchen table. Material, pattern, scissors, needles, pins. We were told to be good, but how could can three children be? I am four years older than Sydney and six years older than Arthur. Somehow, Sidney and I got into a hassle, and we started running around the table. Round and round we went, and Sydney couldn't catch me, and he was getting angrier and angrier by the minute because I was laughing and having fun, and the baby was getting between us, and frustration set in. So he grabbed the big scissors and threw it, and if he had had better aim, he would have blinded me. The scissors landed just below the eye in the soft underskin. The shock and pain and blood frightened me and the kids all at once. They started to cry, and I screamed in terror, and I told Sydney to go and get our neighbor, whose name now escapes me. She lifted me and carried me down the stairs and down the street to the pharmacist through the slush and ice and cold. Me, I was in my longies. No coat, no nothing. The druggist cleaned the area, put on some medicine, and put a patch over my eye. Then she took me home. By this time, Mama had come home and didn't even know I was missing but she got an awful fright at the sight of me being carried in with a patch over my eye. The wound healed over, and finally the patch came off, and there I was with a blonde eyebrow and eyelashes. Only one eye was blonde, and the other was brown. Oh, how the kids envied me. I went around sporting my blonde eyebrow and the scar until both disappeared, and then the kids lost interest in me. At this point, regarding Mama cutting out material for a dress for Rena, I should like to point out logic as my mother saw it. Every dress that Rena ever had made for her finally came down to me when she outgrew it and I grew up. For example, when I started to go out with my girlfriends, all I had to wear was a midi blouse and a blue serge skirt. At this time, the dresses started coming down to me and I loved the feel of the silk and the look of the grown-up dress, and I wore it until it fell apart. Then Mama would sail into me with, I don't know, Rena wears a dress for six years. You put it on and it falls apart. I don't know what to do with you. Such a tomboy. I couldn't get it across that I only had it for a few months, and Rena had it for no use. She didn't listen. I was not the kind of daughter she liked. Rena was her pet, and Rena got all the new dresses, and I had the hand downs But that ended when I started to go to work and earned my own money. Then I laid down the law. She wouldn't sell me any dresses, so I said I had to buy them. That meant that I couldn't give too much into the household budget. I could only give $8 a week instead of $10. I earned $18. And what with car fare and clothes and lunches, I usually ended up not buying any lunch, or I would go into Drake's restaurant and buy a plate of soup. On the table, there were dozens of hot little rolls and butter and a jar of pickled gherkins. So I would fill up on the butter rolls, eat about a quarter jar of gherkins, and when the soup came, I finished that off, ordered a cup of coffee, and the whole bill came to 20 cents. For most of our growing up years, until we got affluent, we had no wash basin in the bathroom, only a bathtub and a toilet bowl. All week, we washed in the kitchen sink. Over the kitchen sink, there was a mirror, which was hung so high that only Mama and Papa could see into it. We kids almost never got to see ourselves in a mirror, unless we climbed up on the dresser over which hung a mirror. If we got caught, we got killed. We went off to school without any last-minute checkup by Mama. There just wasn't any time for that. There were so many of us to feed and the baby to take care of, and Mama's morning started about 5 o'clock. There was breakfast to prepare, and lunch for Papa, and a baby to feed and change, and then we kids got up and started all over again for her, and I wonder at it now, how did she do it? Well, for one thing, we were on our own at a very early age, and we helped each other out. If the buttons were gone on the long east, we took a diaper pin from the baby and pinned it up. If the stockings were torn at the toe, you pulled up the stocking at the toe, bent it under, put on the shoe, and all day you walked uphill. Sure, It hurt and you got a big blister, but we were so busy that we paid no attention to discomfort. As a matter of fact, we got used to it. There were many things we got accustomed to, by walking on the heels of our feet because the soles were worn out. One stuffed paper on the bottom of the inside of the shoe, and when this wore out, you put cardboard in it. Finally, this would wear out, and the stocking, and finally you told Mama that you needed to get your shoes fixed." There wasn't always a second pair to change into, so you sat in the house until the shoes were mended, and then you got a good talking to about running around so much and how much money it cost, but it made absolutely no impression. We continued to tear our shoes and clothes and eat, and somehow we grew up and not too unhappy at that. Our needs were small, and we made our own entertainment, and it seems that most of our lives were spent on the street where we all got a liberal education, mostly the boys'. In some strange way, I grew up quite sheltered. My brothers used to warn the boys not to talk dirty to me when I was around, and since I was a tomboy, I played with the boys who were friends of my brothers, and I competed with them in all the sports with no quarter given, and laundered language was the only concession to my sex. As a matter of fact, I didn't take advantage of being a girl because I wanted to compete with the boys, and I didn't like playing with the girls anyhow. I got one lesson playing with a little girl, and after that I prefer spending my time with my little brothers. We played barber shop. It was winter, and we, my little friend and I, were in her house. Her mother had given us each a big slice of bread and butter, and I was sitting and eating it, and my friend was a barber. I had two long braids hanging down my back. I was about five years old at the time, and bangs in the front. So my friend decided she would see how I looked with only one braid and proceeded to cut away at my braid. She was having some difficulty with it since the scissors were dull, so she called her mother to help her. When her mother saw what happened, she promptly started to beat her up and shooed me out of the house. All this time, I knew nothing of what had happened to me. You can readily see how bright I was. But as I said, it was winter, and when I got dressed to leave, I put on my poopkey hat and normally I had to put my braids over my coat, but this time I could only find one braid, and I got frightened. I walked home very slowly. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know if I would get a licking. So I walked into the house, closed the door, and stood with my back to the door. Mama came over and asked what was wrong, and I couldn't talk. She looked me over very carefully and couldn't find anything wrong. So she sent me to take my hat and coat off, and I was afraid to. So I sat at the kitchen table with my hat on until Mama noticed it. She snatched off my hat, and all hell broke loose. Today, I can only remember crying. But when Papa came home, it started all over again, and then I really got a haircut. Off came the other braid, and I got a short bob. It must have looked real funny. One side, there was no hair. But that was the end of my playing in my friend's house. I was very unlucky. If ever I did anything wrong, I was found out. Even if I didn't do anything wrong, I got blamed for it. The one time I can remember getting away with it was when I was about seven years old. When I was four and a half years old, I had the measles and my eyes crossed. This was a very traumatic thing for me because I had to go to the doctor with Mama and he would put drops in my eyes and it would burn. And then for several hours, I couldn't see a thing. Well, finally, my glasses were fitted. I had to go to the doctor every six months to change the lenses on my glasses. However, since I was a tomboy, I had to be very careful not to break my glasses. This was drummed into my head at every turn. But I hated wearing glasses. They stifled me, and all the kids called me "cuck-eyed mulligan. So every chance I could take them off, I would do so. And of course, when I went to bed. I would take off my glasses and never remember where I put them. The years from seven to 12 were very trying for me. I couldn't play any games with them, and I wasn't allowed to play without them, but my friends would help me out. They would hold my glasses while I ran bases or raced with the boys up the street from one manhole cover to another, or climbed up the clothesline pole, or ran down the fire escape from the third floor to the base when we played It or Pussycat. So I had fun, but I had to be careful or Mama would find out and I would get it. I recall coming to school one day, and as I arrived at the gates, I realized that I wasn't wearing my glasses. I couldn't go home for them, and I couldn't go to class without them. As I write this, I realize how fear ridden I was. I was completely immobilized. I sat down on the school steps and waited until it was lunch hour. When all the kids started filing out to go home for lunch, I ran home too. I quickly found my glasses. Mama didn't get there first. Put them on, sat down for lunch, ate with great gusto. What a relief I felt. And back to school. I went as happy as a lark, glasses on, ready to face any hazard. Except my mother. She titled this section, Days of Wine and Latkes and Knedlech and Matzah and Maple Nuts, Pesach, Passover. Holidays were very special times for us when we were small. It meant new clothes, special foods, and no school. Papa would be home. We were all home from school, and poor Mama, she cooked and baked and fried right through the entire holiday, which lasted eight days. But she seemed to like it, and we kids ate like food was going out of style. The first night of Passover, dinner started late because we had to wait until sundown, and Mama would look out the window to watch for all the Orthodox Jews to come out of the temple. Papa didn't go to temple. When they were seen marching down the street, that was the signal for Mama to serve dinner. But we had to wait until about 8 o'clock, so Mama would fry up 50 latkes. Those are potato pancakes. And we would all sit around woofing down latkes, so that we could hold over our hunger until eight o'clock we were all washed up the table was set with the traditional foods herbs and bitters mozzas and wine glasses at every place setting when dinner started papa would explain the meaning of passover the meaning of every item on the table the prayers were brief and to the point and then we would po- and then we would be told when to sip the wine which was a great treat for us because all during the year there was not a drop to drink, and nobody wanted to drink. There were no drinkers in our house, only Papa, and he drank his bit of whiskey before dinner to help his digestion, never any other time. So unaccustomed as we were to drinking, the wine would bring funny results, like laughing like crazy, stumbling, sleeping kids, and general hilarity. And dinner was never forgotten from year to year. After dinner, there were the nuts and wine. Walnuts, maple nuts, butternuts, almonds, and we ate to the fill and then to bed. The next morning, when all the adults were either busy with going to temple or cooking, we kids were out on the street, all dressed up. The only pastime was shooting nuts. The only nuts used were the little maple nuts. A nut was placed against the wall, and we kids would line up about ten feet away and try to hit the nut with another nut. Each one would try in turn to hit a nut and fail, and quite a few nuts would be lying near each other until finally someone would hit one and collect a whole bunch of nuts. You either ended up with none or bulging pockets full of nuts, which were saved for playing the next time. And after Pesach, we sat around cracking nuts and eating them right up to constipation. Of course, all during this holiday, only unleavened bread matzahs were eaten. So by the time the eighth day rolled around, we were simply dying for a piece of bread. So at sundown on the eighth day, one of us was sent over to the bakery to wait for the fresh bread to come out, and the aroma of baking bread was positively weakening. And I recall waiting for bread past my supper times, starving, just so that I could get the fresh bread home and smear it thick with butter. It had cake beat all hollow. And I never did like cake anyway, except Mama's little moon crickle. During the winter and the summer, we walked home from school to have our lunch. We never took lunches along to school. In the winter, we would usually have something hot for lunch, like potato soup and bread and an apple, or a scrambled egg on a roll with hot cocoa. And if Mama felt real good, she would give us a penny for candy. The pleasures of winter goodies besides candy was hot sweet potatoes. The sweet potato man would stand on the corner of the school and the kids would troop up to him for one penny you get a half of a big sweet potato. It was hot and steamy and would warm the frozen hands. We had no gloves or bittens, and we would gulp the hot potato down, and there was not greater eating in the world. That is next to Charlotte Roos's. That was a real luxury. That cost five cents apiece, and it took a week of saving to afford a Charlotte Roos. That pleasure was a very rare one, and I believe I was about 13 years old before I even tasted one. Another delicacy was Nestle's chunks, and I mean chunks. Each piece was about two inches high in all dimensions, and it cost two cents. It was filled with almonds, and the flavor still lingers in my mouth today. Today, when I can afford all of these goodies, I'm dieting. There was a variety of candies. Then, that do not appear on the candy counter today, like teddy bears. Juju bees bear a very small resemblance to teddy bears, except that they are chewy and sweet. Teddy bears were every bit of ten times as big and came in only one color, honey. And one teddy bear could last, if carefully nurtured, sucked, not chewed, about one half hour. And you got two for one penny. Another type of candy that is extinct is multicolored paper candy. On a strip of paper about 12 inches long, they were pasted little rounds of sugar candy, red, white, green, blue, yellow, etc. These were about the size of a small pea, and you bit them off, sometimes with a paper. And you could swap them with the other kids for some other kind of candy, like licorice, pronounced liqu or chocolate pennies, or caramels. In the winter there was halva, but that was for the rich kids. We got halva on a holiday in autumn to celebrate the harvest, and at that time we also got dates, figs, and a kind of hard, tubular thing, which when broken open gave forth a sweet and tender meat which surrounded a tiny nut. This is called buxer. It can be found in delicatessens with luxury items. Also there was a Turkish candy which was sold by a vendor who carried his wares on his head on a tray. He didn't come around very often, but when he did, He resembled the Pied Piper. All the kids ran after him with their pennies held tightly in a fist, outstretched, so that he could see that they meant business. Then he would stop, remove the tray from his head, place it on a bench or a stoop, and you had two choices. One was made of a little white seed with honey, and the other was like hard, sweet boards. Their names escape me now, but I can tell you they were delicious. I guess everything was delicious, because we were always hungry. And unfortunately, that's where it stops. I wish there were more. Over the years, I've lost contact with Sylvia's family. It is my hope that perhaps one of them may hear this podcast and think dearly of her, as I do. In the next podcast, episode 17, perhaps we can return to the delayed interview with Peter Wong. It all depends on the coronavirus. If you like this podcast, Please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.